I'm sure you have heard the familiar saying, a picture paints a thousand words. That phrase has gained a lot of traction because there is so much truth to it. When you look at a picture, whether it's a photograph or a painting, it communicates volumes. Now there is both a good aspect and a bad aspect to that reality. What I mean is, if the painting is not an accurate depiction of something that took place, then it's very easy to get the wrong idea stuck in your mind because you saw it in a picture. Unfortunately, this often happens when it comes to paintings about events that took place in the life and ministry of Jesus. For example, most paintings you see of the Last Supper depict Jesus and all of his disciples sitting on one side of a large oak table with huge throne-like chairs. However, we know from history that it wasn't that way at all. They actually ate their Passover meal while reclining on the elbow, on the floor, beside a table that stood only a foot or 18 inches above the ground. Now that's just one example of the way artists have sometimes rendered things or depicted things that are not really accurate. Another scene that has often been painted is the burial tomb of Jesus. It is very common to see pictures of the tomb with a couple soldiers standing around as if they aren't sure what to do. That depiction is also very far removed from historical reality, which is terribly unfortunate. You see, to fully appreciate the resurrection of Jesus, it's important that we understand his unique burial. When Jesus was buried, it wasn't a normal burial. And that is the focus of our text this morning in Mark chapter 15. But before we turn to that passage, I want us to look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by way of introduction. So turn with me past the four Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is commonly known as the resurrection chapter of the Bible. It is called that because here in this chapter, Paul discusses the doctrine of our own future literal bodily resurrection, as well as the literal bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins the chapter by discussing the gospel or the good news. Follow along, please, as I read the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. These verses contain one of the most concise 
presentations of the gospel found anywhere in the pages of the New Testament. Unfortunately, the way the verses are divided up in our English translations has caused some confusion concerning the number of points that Paul makes in his gospel presentation. Very often, when you hear people refer to these verses, they will say that the gospel is this. Number one, Christ died for our sins. Number two, he was buried. And number three, he rose again the third day. But that's not really the logic of what Paul is saying here. Paul actually has two main points with two supporting subpoints under each of them. Let me explain what I mean. When Paul sets forth the gospel or the good news here in this passage, his two main points are, number one, Christ died for our sins. Number two, he rose again the third day. That's the good news. Christ died for our sins and he rose again the third day. Underneath each of those points, Paul has two supporting subpoints. Just sort of picture an outline. Main point, two supporting subpoints. Main point, two supporting subpoints. So Christ died for our sins. We know that, number one, because the scripture says so. And we know that, number two, because Christ was buried. You don't bury people who are alive. You only bury dead people. Christ died for our sins. That's Paul's first main point. His second point is that Christ rose again the third day. How do we know that? We know that, number one, because the Scripture says so. And we know that, number two, because Christ was seen. Once people have been buried, you don't see them again unless they rise from the dead. Christ rose again the third day, and he was seen on that very day and many days afterwards. So that's the logical presentation Paul is setting forth here in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins. We know that because the Scripture says so, and we know that because Christ was buried. Christ rose again the third day. We know that because the Scripture says so, and we know that because Christ was seen. Beloved, that's the gospel. That's the good news. The Lord Jesus died for our sins, and he rose again the third day. Part of that glorious reality is the fact that Jesus was buried. As I said earlier, when Jesus was buried, it was not a normal burial. It was a very unique burial. So let's turn together to Mark chapter 15 as we conclude our look at that powerful chapter of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 15. Please follow along as I read verses 42 through 47. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoned the centurion. He asked, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took Jesus down, and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a new tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. 
And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. That is Mark's account of the burial of Jesus. All the preceding verses of this chapter have focused on the crucifixion of our Lord and the unjust judicial events that led up to the crucifixion. The crucifixion itself is described in verses 24 through 41, and then Mark gives us this description of the burial. You may wonder why Mark and the other gospel writers take the time to describe the burial of Jesus. There are probably at least three reasons why. Number one, the gospel writers are telling a historical story, and since the burial of Jesus is part of the story, they include it in their records. Number two, the gospel writers point to the burial of Jesus as proof that he was really dead, knowing that some people would come along to say that Jesus only passed out and was later revived. And number three, the gospel writers want to make sure that everyone understands all the precautions that were taken by the enemies of Jesus to keep him in the tomb. If you study the gospel accounts closely, you will find that there were five preventatives, five precautions described in the four gospel records to keep Jesus in the tomb. Let me briefly mention all five of them. Number one, the tomb was a solid rock tomb of one entrance. These tombs had an entrance of about four and a half to five feet tall, which is why Peter and John had to bend over to look into the tomb when they ran to it. Secondly, the second precaution or preventative that was used, John 19.39 says Jesus was buried according to the Jewish burial customs. This involved about 100 pounds of spices that encased the body. The typical pattern or practice was to take 11-inch wide strips of cloth to wrap the body, and between each layer they would place gummy spices. This was to eliminate some of the stench from decay. So Jesus had about 100 pounds of encasement on his body. History tells us that Gamaliel had 86 pounds of spices used for his body, not to mention the cloths that were used to wrap his body. History also tells us that when Herod died, it took 500 servants to carry the spices used for his burial. So it's not a stretch to say that the, the encasement around the body of Jesus was approximately 100 pounds. Thirdly, a large stone was rolled against the entrance of the tomb. Mark 16.4 says it was an extremely large stone. The Bayesi manuscript of the Greek text of Mark 16.4 says, quote, a stone that could not be moved by 20 men. Two non-Christian engineering professors from Georgia Tech University went on a tour of Israel and researched this very issue of the tombs, the style of tombs, the, the stones, etc. They said that the stone placed against the tomb of Jesus had to be at least one and a half to two tons. Fourthly, a guard unit was placed at the tomb. 
We'll see this a little later when we go from Mark's gospel to Matthew's gospel near the end of the message. But the Greek word that, Mark, uh, that Matthew uses is kustodian. A kustodia was not a podunk guard unit. In fact, a man by the name of Flavius Vigidius Renatus, who was a military historian, wrote a manual on the kustodia, recording the discipline and the training of this group. The manual he wrote was called the Military Institutes of the Romans. He wrote it during a time in which the Roman army was beginning to slip and lower their, lowering their standards, so he wrote it as a challenge to them to keep their training standards high. It was so good that our government used it to train our Green Beret that fought in Vietnam. That's how well this guard unit was trained. It's quite a contrast to the silly pictures we often see of the guarded tomb of Jesus with three men standing there holding wooden spears and wearing miniskirts. That's not at all how it was. A custodia was a four to 16 man unit, usually 16. Each man was trained to protect six square feet, 16 men, four on a side. As a team, they could protect 36 square yards against an entire battalion of soldiers. And then fifthly, there was a Roman seal placed on the tomb. A Roman seal was simply a clay pack that was marked by the impression of the ring of a Roman official. That seal stood for the power and the authority of the entire Roman Empire. No one touched a Roman seal. If anyone touched a Roman seal, he was crucified upside down. So those are the five preventatives to make sure Jesus remained in the tomb. Mark doesn't mention all of these specifically, but that is the combined description from all four gospel accounts. So with that in mind, let's see how Mark describes it here at the end of chapter 15. Notice in verse 42, he says, Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, and then Mark goes on to make his point, but we'll stop there for just a moment. The phrase here in this verse, now when evening had come, could very easily communicate something to us that really is not intended. Because when you think of that, you think probably, you know, 8, 9 o'clock at night, sundown, evening is coming, dusk, etc. That's not the way the Jews use the phrase. That phrase was used to refer to the time from 3 until 6 in what we would call the afternoon. So this is Friday late in the afternoon. Now, there are other views of when Jesus was crucified, Wednesday or Thursday, but I believe the evidence points to a Friday crucifixion. Jesus cried out, it is finished, at three o'clock in the afternoon, and he followed that by saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then he yielded up his spirit. Remember now, he himself did that. In John 10, 18, he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own initiative. There's a sense in which the crucifixion did not kill Jesus, because twice we are told in Scripture that he still had the strength to cry out with a loud voice. 
Jesus did not fade away slowly into death. But rather, he died at the very moment he chose to die. Matthew 27, 50 says, He dismissed his spirit from his body. John 19, 30 tells us, He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That is such a fascinating phrase. Normally, a man dies first, and then his head falls. The exact opposite took place when Jesus died. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit, which illustrates the fact that no one took his life from him. He gave it up himself. He died at the very moment he chose to die, and that was 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. We know from historical records, from Jewish sources, Roman sources, that on Friday of Passover week, which is when this took place, the Passover lamb was slaughtered at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the shofar was blown by the priest to signify that the sacrifice had taken place on behalf of the nation. That is exactly when Jesus gave up his spirit. He was sacrificed as the Passover lamb. Later in this evening, the residents of Jerusalem would celebrate Passover, and they would eat of the Passover lamb. Jesus and his disciples, because they were from Galilee, had already celebrated Passover prior to this. But this was the night when the southern Jews would commemorate Passover. The Judean Jews, the Jews from Jerusalem, the capital city. The vast majority would do so in complete ignorance of the fact that the true and ultimate Passover lamb had already been sacrificed on a cross that very afternoon. And when the shofar blew or was blown by the priest to announce that the lamb had been slaughtered, indeed the lamb had been slaughtered. Because the Passover evening was coming and because the Sabbath began at sundown, there was an urgency about getting the body of Jesus off the cross and into a tomb. So a man named Joseph of Arimathea stepped forward to do the job. Verse 43 tells us, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. All four gospel writers mention this man, Joseph, and they tell us he was from Arimathea, which was a Jewish town about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Both Mark and Luke state that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which answers a perplexing question that some have posed through the years. Namely, how in the world did the gospel writers know about what happened at the trial before the Sanhedrin? How would they have known? Well, this is the answer. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which is probably how the gospel writers got their information about the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Luke tells us that Joseph dissented from the council's verdict against Jesus. Now that took quite a bit of courage. He dissented. John tells us 
that prior to all of this, Joseph had been a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. However, when all the events surrounding the unjust murder of Jesus began to unfold, Joseph stepped forward and was no longer afraid or ashamed to stand up for Jesus. He stood up for Jesus in his descent of the council's decision, and he stood up for Jesus by taking the responsibility for his burial. Remember now, all the disciples had fled the scene. They were gone. So someone else had to take care of the body of Jesus. Therefore, Joseph went into Pilate and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Needless to say, that wasn't an easy thing to do. It would have been scary to go against all the other Jewish leaders who wanted nothing to do with Jesus except to get rid of him. Furthermore, it would have been scary to go to Pilate because who knew what kind of mood Pilate was in after the Jewish leaders had basically forced his hand to have Jesus crucified. Here in this verse, Mark tells us that Joseph took courage. He took courage and went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. You have to respect a man like this. You have to appreciate a man like this. It's not surprising that all four gospel writers tell us about him. Rare is the man who will stand for his convictions in the face of so much adversity, so much potential danger, so much opposition from all the other Jewish leaders on the council, and who knows what he was going to get from Rome. That's exactly what Joseph did. He took courage, went into Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. And verse 44 tells us, Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. We know from history that victims of crucifixion would sometimes suffer for days before dying. In fact, much of the process was designed to make it stretch out. They didn't want quick death. They wanted it to be a slow, painful death that would send a message to the rest of society. That's why Pilate was so surprised that Jesus was dead after only six hours, nailed to the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning, dead at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Verse 45 says, So when he, that is Pilate, found out from the centurion that, yes, indeed, Jesus was dead, he granted the body to Joseph. Now again, it would be easy to read over some of these statements just all too quickly and miss the point. When Pilate granted the body of Jesus to Joseph, you need to understand that was an official statement from the Roman government that Jesus was dead. Pilate would have never granted the body of Jesus to anyone if it weren't absolutely certain that Jesus was dead. And I stress this because one of the most popular theories through the years, through the centuries, to try to explain away the resurrection of Jesus is called the swoon theory. That Jesus didn't really die. He just lost some blood, passed out, was put in a a tomb, and in this dark, damp tomb, it somehow revived him, and somehow he pushed the stone away and appeared as Lord of life. 
It's silly. It's ridiculous. But that is, that is a very popular view to try to explain away the resurrection. Listen, Pilate knew Jesus was dead. He would not have granted the body of Jesus to Joseph or anyone else. So when he did, that was an official statement from the Roman government, Jesus is dead. So verse 46 tells us, Then he, that is Joseph, brought fine linen, took Jesus down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. John tells us in his gospel account that Nicodemus also helped out in this process. He was the one who actually brought the mixture of myrrh and aloes that weighed somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds. So the two of them worked to prepare the body of Jesus. And you can understand how it would take two. If you've ever tried to work with someone who's passed out, limp like that, it's almost impossible for one person to work with another. So the two of them worked together to prepare the body of Jesus according to the Jewish burial custom. You have to wonder what was going through the mind of Nicodemus while he was doing this. You see, in John 3, Jesus had told Nicodemus that the Son of Man must, must be lifted up to provide eternal life. And now Nicodemus handles the limp body of Jesus that had been lifted up and crucified just as Jesus had predicted. If you remember that story in John 3, you will remember that Nicodemus started out by coming to Jesus at night, but now he comes out in the open daylight to declare his allegiance to Jesus. Think about it this way. The death of Jesus gave Nicodemus and Joseph a courage the life of Jesus had not given them. They stepped forward to be identified as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, in all likelihood, some of you here this morning need to do that. What I mean is, you've been playing secret disciple too long. You, you, you believe in Christ. You do know him, but you're ashamed. You're embarrassed around your friends or your family members or your co-workers. You've been playing secret disciple too long, and it's time you come out in the open. Just like Joseph did on this occasion, like Nicodemus did on this occasion. So Joseph and Nicodemus prepared the body for burial. They wrapped the body with strips of cloth, and they placed the aromatic spices between the layers of cloth. The spices alone weighed about 75 pounds or more, so the entire casement was probably close to 100. Luke tells us in his gospel record that Joseph and Nicodemus got all of this done before sundown, which was the official start of the Sabbath day for the Jewish people. The body of Jesus was prepared and placed in Joseph's tomb, which was nearby. So all they had to do is get the body down, prepare it, and get it over to that tomb to place it there. Matthew 27, 57 informs us that Joseph was a wealthy man. And this fulfills Isaiah 53, 9, which says his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. This shows the sovereign control of Jesus even over his own burial. Jesus saw to it that he was buried in a rich man's tomb 
and he was buried by sundown. He had to be buried by, before sundown so he could fulfill his promise that he would come forth on the third day. Now, it's one thing to control your death. It's quite another thing to control your burial. Jesus basically borrowed this guy's tomb. He didn't have one of his own because he didn't need one. He's only going to borrow it for a few days. By the way, this brings up a question that is often asked about the prediction of Jesus that he would be three days and three nights in the earth. You need to understand that in the Jewish mind, any part of a day constituted the whole. So Jesus was placed in the tomb on Friday. He was there Saturday. He was resurrected on Sunday. That fits the Jewish concept of three days and three nights. We don't view it that way doesn't make sense to us, but we have to take the words of Jesus the way he would have communicated in his day and age. According to the Jewish reckoning of time, Jesus was in the tomb for the length of time he said he would be there. And furthermore, as I mentioned earlier, not only did he one time use the phrase three days and three nights, at other times we find the phrase on the third day. And that's when he was raised on the third day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So he was in the tomb for the length of time he said he would be there. His body was there, but he wasn't there. He was with the Father. He went to the Father when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But the body of Jesus was placed in this tomb, and a large stone was rolled against the door of the tomb. And the chapter closes with with verse 47 where we read, And Mary Magdalene... And Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. What precious women these two ladies were. They were at the scene of the crucifixion, looking on from afar. They were looking on from afar because they couldn't bear to look at his suffering up close, but neither could they entertain the thought of leaving him. And here they still are at the burial of Jesus. But there's a little more to this story that Mark chose not to record. So to see that, we need to back up to Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 27. So go from the end of Mark back to the left to the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. In verse 62, we read, On the next day which followed the day of preparation. Now keep the chronology straight. The day of preparation was Friday. They would prepare everything. The Jewish, the the Judean Jews would prepare everything for Passover that night. So it was called the day of preparation. So on the next day, that would be Saturday, on the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. Luke specifically mentions that the next day was the Saturday Sabbath. The Jewish leaders had hypocritically gone through their Passover celebration the night before. The day before they prepared everything, that night they celebrated Passover, but they couldn't get their minds off Jesus. He was such a problem to them that they wanted to make sure that he didn't cause them any more problems. So as soon as they had celebrated the Passover that Friday evening, the next day on Saturday, they go to Pilate saying, verse 62, 
Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. It's funny. I don't know if that's the right word to use. Maybe it is. It's funny that the enemies of Jesus remembered this, but his disciples didn't. As you read through the gospel records, you don't get the impression that any of the believers, not not only the twelve, but that any of the believers expected Jesus to rise again. They didn't understand the predictions of Jesus, but his enemies did understand them. They knew what he had claimed. They had it right. They knew that he had said, uh, you know, after three days, I'm going to rise. They knew exactly what Jesus asserted, so they decided that they had to do something about it. Verse 64, therefore, this is their conversation with Pilate, therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Now this is ridiculous. Did they really think the disciples would have the nerve to try to steal the body of Jesus? The disciples had all fled in fear. They were afraid to be identified with Jesus or associated with Jesus. So there's no reason to believe that this scheme would have ever entered their minds. And I'm not sure if the Jewish leaders really believed this was a possibility or if they were simply trying to use it as a cover-up in an attempt to make sure Jesus didn't rise from the dead. After all, by this time, they knew, they knew well that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They may have also known about the little girl he raised from the dead, the daughter of Jairus. So even though they didn't believe in Jesus, even though they didn't love him, they knew he had amazing power of some kind. Therefore, they wanted to do whatever they could do to prevent him from using his power to continue causing problems for them. Thus, they asked Pilate to make the tomb secure. Pilate did two things to secure the tomb. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, Here you have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. The first thing Pilate did was to assign a guard unit. As I mentioned earlier, this is, a, this is the custodian. A custodia was a four to 16 man unit, usually 16. Each man was trained to protect six square feet. So picture 16 men, four on a side. As a team, they could protect 36 square yards against an entire battalion of soldiers. That's the first thing Pilate did. 16 man unit, top elite trained And then the second thing he did is mentioned in the next verse, verse 66. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. The second thing Pilate did was to place a seal on the stone. Now understand the seal itself wasn't anything strong. It wasn't anything binding. It was only a clay pack or a piece of wax with a string attached to us. It wasn't like, don't picture in your mind some big chain somehow, you know, securing the stone in place or a strong rope or anything like that. No, the significance was in the fact that it was marked by the impression of the ring of a Roman official. 
That seal stood for the power and authority of the entire Roman Empire. No one touched a Roman seal. If anyone touched a Roman seal, he was crucified upside down. That's what made the seal so significant. In a sense, you could say that all these precautions were overkill. They were way over the top. But they wanted to make sure that Jesus stayed put. As they said up in the previous verse, listen, if he doesn't, if something happens, if that body goes missing, well, the last deception will be worse than the first. We're going to have a mess on our hands. So we need to do whatever we can do to make sure that body stays put. However, you know the rest of the story. The body didn't stay put. He didn't stay in the tomb. But that's the next message. But, beloved, here's the, the, the application I want to draw from this. So stay with me here. When we see, when you look at, at these events and you see all the ways that Jesus sovereignly controlled his trials, he sovereignly controlled his arrest, his own death, he sovereignly controlled his own burial, it ought to give us great confidence in our Savior. He is in control of everything. He really is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of what he has ordained. And we need to remember that when we walk through deep, dark valleys in life, it's so easy to begin thinking that things are spiraling out of control, that Jesus isn't aware of what's going on. He doesn't know. He doesn't understand. He's not tuned in. He's not in control. Don't believe that. He is always at work. Even in the midst of the darkest days, like the day he was unjustly murdered and sealed away in a tomb. He was still at work through all of those events and worked them out for his purposes. Don't ever forget that in life. Let's bow together in closing this morning. As you bow your head and close your eyes, reflecting on what we have seen from the Word of God this morning regarding the burial of our Lord and His own control over all of those details, even making sure that He was buried in a rich man's tomb to fulfill prophecy from the book of Isaiah, making sure He was dead and buried by sundown so that He could rise as He had predicted on the third day, all of those details leading up to his actual crucifixion and burial. It's a majestic picture, really. Sad picture of what our Lord went through, no doubt. We don't want to minimize that. A sad, tragic picture. The unjust nature of it, the unfairness, the inequity. But it's also a majestic picture of the Lord Jesus. Seeing him walk through his trials without feeling the need to defend himself. Didn't have to defend himself. Seeing him go through all that he experienced, knowing that the Father had a plan, and he had to walk through that dark valley to fulfill the Father's will. My prayer is that our view, our insight, just seeing the Lord Jesus as he really is, would heighten 
and increase our love for him. If you're here today and you don't know him, turn to him. Call out to him. Romans chapter 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him. Let go of whatever is holding you back and turn to Jesus Christ in faith and embrace him as your Lord and Savior. Father, the more we study your word, the more we are amazed. Pulling all these details together from the various gospel accounts that you've preserved for us, seeing the picture the best that we're able to, to the best of our own ability, our limited ability, it is amazing to consider what took place at that event in human history. As our Lord was unjustly crucified, but bore our sin, but yet the amazing nature of your work didn't stop there with the finished work of Christ on the cross, but to see that you were still at work, he was still at work through the details of his burial even. All of those details. And to see how that he eventually, just as he predicted, rose on the third day. We look forward to our contemplation of that as we continue through Mark's gospel when we move into chapter 16. But before we even get to that, may our hearts be thrilled by this picture of Jesus controlling all the details of his own burial. May it increase and heighten our love for him. And in closing, we pray for anyone here among us who does not know him personally, who has not yielded to him, who has not embraced him. For whatever reason, Father, whatever is, has been the hold up or whatever, whatever has been the hindrance, may your spirit remove that so that whatever they're holding in their hands clenched with a, a clenched fist, that they would release that and let go and embrace Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.